This is Rad Talk with Tracy, the podcast. This is a place where you'll discover what's possible when people impacted by reactive attachment disorder inspire change and build community through sharing their stories and expertise. I'm Tracy Poffenroth Prado, and I'm your host. I'm really glad you're here. And before we get started, if you like the podcast, please click like, share, and write a review. It helps so much. Let's get started. Welcome to this episode of Rad Talk with Tracy, the podcast. And I have been waiting a long time to introduce you to our guest, Dr. Chuck Geddes. He's a PhD psychologist and really, I think, pioneering a new path for our kids and family with complex trauma. He has a organization called Complex Trauma Resources, and he's also written a book, which we're going to be really diving deep into today. Everybody needs this book. As a rad mom myself, I have not read anything so well put together about the brain and with so many strategies and something that's current and something that is working for our kids. So uh, I am literally giving this book to my son's therapist next week. And uh, it's just, everybody needs to buy this book. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Geddes. Well, thank you very much for having me, Tracy. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while, as you said. Right. I'm so glad you're here. And thank you so much for doing this. You know, we were talking and I found you for me accidentally, but then I thought, where have you been? You've been out there. I wish I would have known about you and your services and what you're doing so much sooner. And so this is why I'm really, really excited to share what you do with, with everybody listening. So tell me, I read your book, Children and Complex Trauma, A Roadmap for Healing and Recovery. And I want to pick that apart today. Uh, The first half seems to really describe the brain and the brains of the kids that either people work with or that we're raising. And then uh, the second part is really about your approach and how that works and how successful it is and strategies. Tell me about your aha moment. How did this all start for you? Well, I've been working in the field of child and youth mental health uh, probably for the past uh, 25 years. And uh, we were increasingly in in Canada, child and youth mental health is connected with child protective services. And so we had uh, many children coming to us who were in foster care or uh, some from adoptive families. And it just felt like what, what we knew to try wasn't working. I was an experienced clinician at that point, but really we were getting uh, cases that seemed, well, I think what was unusual about it for, for us is it just felt like the children were experiencing challenges in so many different areas. And by the time they were coming to us, they'd often had a lot of different assessments. And so the, the parents were feeling overwhelmed, the foster parents were feeling overwhelmed and everyone was kind of confused. And uh, so you know, we were sort of struggling along with that, doing as best we could. And we happened to uh, learn of the work of Dr. Bruce Perry and the Child Trauma Academy. And I felt as I, as I was reading his book, uh, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. And as, as I was going through that, I felt like that, that was my aha moment. It's like, oh, this is what we've been missing. No wonder these kids are showing this range of challenges. And no wonder our typical kinds of interventions aren't working. So that was really the starting point for me. And this is back... This would have been probably 2007, something like that. You mentioned a few kids in your book that when you were piloting your approach and your program or kids that you've worked with, I really related to some of the descriptions of the caregivers or the parents feeling shocked, burnt out, overwhelmed. You don't know what to do anymore. And sometimes even with our daughter, you know, she didn't even respond to motivators and so it was, it was really ineffective. Whatever we were doing wasn't, wasn't working. And you talk about that, about going into care team meetings and the meetings not being effective. Why? What was happening or what was missing? Well, I like to say that the, you know, the more challenging the child, the more people are at the table and the more opinions there are about what we should be doing when we didn't understand 
the effects of these traumatic, toxic, stressful experiences on children's brain development, their nervous system development, then we were just missing the mark over and over again in terms of just not understanding what was uh, what was behind it. And, you know, at the same time, I think that our society's still kind of stuck in this, this paradigm about children's behavior that relates to consequences and they need to learn. And we need, whether we talk about positive, um, you know, consequences or outcomes for the behavior or negatives, that seems to be the, the place people want to start. And I think one thing that really sort of flipped this for me was to realize that we were dealing with these immature brains in these big bodies sometimes. Right. And when our, when our view was to see them with, see the outside and think they ought to be capable of more than they are. So therefore this is willful behavior. This is, they're, they're trying to make me angry, you know, put all of this kind of uh, attribution onto these kids because we thought the logical part of their brains was in charge. Right. Once we could sort of turn that and realize, wait a minute, we've got children with vulnerable nervous systems, vulnerable brains, who really the wiring is different than in typical kids. And, and so then we have to address that. And, and in every, what I, I think what I've tried to do with the book, and I, I hope you found this Tracy in reading through it is that, you know, I've tried to take some pretty complex ideas and break it down to make it really simple and manageable for people and to give some uh, lots of practical strategies. You were talking about the motivators that your, your daughter didn't even respond to motivators. And, you know, partly I think that's, that would be an example of let's, let's take this trauma-informed practice. We've all been talking trauma-informed practice for quite a while now, but let's sort of take, see that through the implications of that. So, so here we've got kids who's why don't they respond to motivators? Okay, well, number one, it might just be the wrong intervention at the wrong time. They may be too stressed to be able to respond to the motivator. So the wrong part of the brain is activated when they're stressed, uh, you know, rather than the thinking part of the brain that would respond to motivators, it's their kind of survival brain that's driving it, driving them. But also we've learned some through some studies that uh, children's brains react differently to motivation and to pleasure and that you know, many of the children that we work with, we have to sort of intensify the motivator to have it have any effect at all. That the, the pat on the typical pat on the back and, hey, well done, you're, you're working hard here. With typical kids, that might carry them for a while, that might motivate them, it kind of makes them feel good. But with kids with trauma backgrounds, often that pleasure center of the brain doesn't even light up in response to that. So that would be an right. example of we're trying to take one of these things and, and dig a little deeper once, once we understand the trauma. I have a million notes here and I know we're not going to get through your book. You did exactly that explain the brain in such a way that I think anybody reading the book, especially the analogies that you give are so helpful. So I wasn't going to jump to this yet, but you were talking about the brain and those three levels of the brain. I think it was based off of McLean, the triune brain. And you were talking about or describing there's the logical brain, the survival brain, and in between that, the emotional brain. Can you talk a bit about that and your upside down triangle? Uh, yeah. So I'll give a caveat that I hope we don't have any neuroscientists on the call because <laughs> my explanations here probably are pretty simplistic. And yet again, if it's practical, then, um, then we're hitting the right level, right? Exactly. You know, I was really impressed with, uh, again, Dr. Bruce Perry kind of opening my eyes to a lot of this initially. And he talks about the brain sitting in your head like an upside down triangle. And as your brain develops, it's kind of developing from, he says, the inside out and the bottom up. And so the bottom, the, the kind of narrow tip of your brain in this upside down triangle, that's you know, that's the part of your brain, that's your survival brain, that's keeping your, your body regulated, that's managing your heart rate and your, your breathing and, you know, all the, all the systems that we need to have. And I've kind of, in a bit of a simplistic manner, put the fight or flight or freeze response into, into that section of the brain. And then on top of that, we've got this kind of uh, emotional brain, the, the attachment connection kind of part of our brain, social brain. And then the last part of the brain, the biggest part of the brain in this upside down triangle is the thinking brain, the logical, logical brain. That's our cortex. When I saw these kinds of images from Dr. Perry, his are a lot more complicated than that, a lot more detailed. But when I, when I thought about that image, I thought, you know, our, ch our children are actually kind of the opposite to that. So what's pushing them through the day 
it's instead of the brain being an upside down triangle, it's like a big, you know, big fat triangle with a big heavy section at the bottom, which is actually the survival part of the brain. And that's the part that most of our children, many are, are kind of living in most of the time. So that has to do with the amygdala in your brain, your, your sensor in a sense for danger, being activated and being highly kind of attuned for any kind of changes in the environment that might be perceived as a threat. So that, so thinking of that image of the brain with that survival brain being the biggest, most dominant part of the brain in terms of how our children function. And then we've still got the attachments and we still emotion regulation, all these other things kind of layered on top of that. And the last part of the brain to develop and the, but the weakest developed with our kids is that thinking logical brain. And when they're stressed, that part's offline. And so we do, we see parents, we see school teachers, we see others, when the child's in a dysregulated state coming in at the wrong place, they're trying to explain to the child, they're doing a lot of talking and a lot of explaining. Right. I've been there. I've done that. The (laughs) lectures and the try to reason. Yeah. My wife has a nice analogy (laughs) for that. She talks about, um, you know, trying to teach a a pig to sing. It doesn't (laughs) work and it annoys the pig. And uh, it's a bit of an analogy for that. Sometimes what we can get stuck into with the children that we care for, that you care for, that, you know, we're trying to come in with all this thinking and logic when our kids aren't at all. It was a big aha moment for me reading your book. Not that I didn't know that. And I have a background in this. So I have a couple of questions on this because you mentioned, and that made sense to me that if the logical brain isn't developed or functioning and we're trying to talk to that part of the brain, we're not going to get through. On page 53, you talked about a boy, a 10-year-old boy, Caleb, who was throwing books in class and swearing So if someone like you were saying, thought that the brain, the logical brain was in charge, you would do just that, talk to them, tell them it's inappropriate and hope that it would make sense. And then you ask, but if you realize or recognize that part of the brain isn't working, what would you do differently? And you talk about, you want to regulate them first. So when we take away that expectation, like, you know what you're doing and it not being there that they really don't know what they're doing. And we go back to more supportive, calming techniques to bring them down a little bit. That's where we really need to be focusing. So my question is with children with, and I know you're not big on labels and I love that too. And I want to talk about that and why you are uh, not a fan of uh, labels, but you mentioned that these kids really, we, we say they're willful, they're stubborn, they're doing it on purpose. They know better. They know what they're doing and they don't. It's hard for my parent brain because sometimes I do see behaviors that are on purpose and manipulative. And so, uh, how do you delineate when that part of the brain isn't working, when it's manipulative, does it matter? And do you just use the strategies that you've talked about in your book? And really that doesn't matter that the answer to that question doesn't matter. It's just follow these steps. So you have children that can still be willful and try and get away with it. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So we we know that there can be an element to that for sure with every child. And, and it's, and it's a really good question. This came up for me in a care team meeting yesterday, you know, the, the parent and the foster parent and the therapist were saying, well, how do we know when it's uh, willful behavior versus something that's driven by something else. And, you know, sometimes I think in the moment, we're probably not going to know right then. I think what we would probably say is that over time, we've learned that when we spend a lot of time in prevention, when we spend a lot of time trying to quiet the child's brain over time, we use an analogy of a stress staircase, saying that our children often are living pretty high up that stress staircase. So we we will uh, really focus in on what can we do in a preventive way to help their brain to kind of reset their baseline, to lower down on that stress staircase. And what do you know? A lot of those things that looked like willful, manipulative kinds of behaviors go away. Wow. So, so, So then at that point, we can say, okay, what's left, you know, if we've really quieted their brain down and we're still seeing some of this, okay, maybe that makes sense that this is more them, you know, trying to manipulate the situation versus they're in this hyper, this state of fear, hyper arousal, overstressed, and just reacting. And, you know, so if we can, if we can take the one out of the picture, 
because they're more in control, more that I love Karen Purvis's term about felt safety, mm-hmm. you know, children to that point where there's that felt safety moment after moment, and we've quieted down their stress response, then yeah, then we, we might interpret the behavior a little bit differently at that point. Right. And I think it's trying to see this with new eyes. There hasn't been a lot of support for our kids and parents and, or it's been hard to access uh, or hard to find. And so this is why I'm so excited about your book and the information and your services, because it's so needed and so rare, or at least in my experience, it has been. And I like what you were saying. You gave a an analogy about the spider walking through a forest in relation to how our kids or these kids are always on high alert. And so we're walking through a forest, it's very calm. And then things start to get dark and webby and there's a spider on your shoulder and people either fight, beat it off or run and scream or freeze. But then it, it, we can regulate again and calm down, but you related it to our kids are always in that state, even though we don't see it, that they're always, their bodies are always elevated Mm -hmm. and in that response state. Yeah. So when we have children that you're caring for where they've had, you know, lived experience of not being safe. And that could be, safety can come from a lot of different things. It can mean that I did not have a parent responding to me when I was distressed. It can mean that I never knew which parent was going to show up. It was going to be the angry parent or the loving parent. It could mean that um, I was hit. I was hurt. I was abused in different ways. It could be that I just, yeah, could be lots of different things that have gave them this experience of being being harmed and being hurt and being afraid and not having some apparent there to protect them and care for them. Right. So what do you do over and over and over in those situations as they're feeling that their body goes to this place of stress and distress, and it sort of creates this sort of super highway pathway of the, the way that their nervous system will respond as soon as they're a hint that this might be happening again, and they move can move right into this fight or flight or freeze kind of place. And so that becomes this kind of such an ingrained response that are, uh, it's interesting to think about things like the sensitivity of the child Mm -hmm. to the micro expressions on your face, that they're so attuned to any, their brains are attuned to anything that could be uh, paired over time with a threat. So your eyebrow goes up and your kid freezes, your, they hear a voice tone or a certain noise in the house. Oh, and it takes them to that place of fear right away. Now, could they describe that? Could they talk about, oh, I heard this noise and it made me afraid? Probably not, because it's happening at that nervous system level with this, you know, that that it's happening over and over and over again. And so that that pairing is really deeply kind of between the, you know, here's this little event on the outside and here's what could happen to me. That pairing becomes really, really strong. And so, you know, I think many times children are, they're scanning the environment for, they don't even know they're doing this, but they're scanning the environment for, for any kind of uh, threat. So what might that look like? It might look like a child who you're talking on the phone, two rooms over, and then you hear the child's voice. What was that? You know, what was that again? What's happening? That's my son. (laughs) Ah, Yeah. 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 Or hearing that you talk about teachers in classroom, they say, yeah, they, they seem to know what every child in the class is doing all at the same time. They know who's walking down the hall. They hear a noise out in the parking lot and they're reacting to it. So that's uh, so often so many of our kids in that heightened state of, of really a fear on the edge of fear. Could they describe it, tell you what it's about? No. So they're just in that place of being so quick to react. And sometimes it's so subtle, like what you're saying, it's so subtle that we might not even see it or misinterpret it ourselves. And when you're later in the book, when you're talking about the strategies and the whole approach that you take, part of it is starting to try and recognize those early signs before we get to the big blowout, the big tantrum. And, you know, I really related to one of the boys in your book, he wasn't sleeping and he had grown up in an alcoholic family. So his father would come home late at night. It was really unpredictable yelling. And so you talk about how, even when he's asleep and I'm doing quotes, his body is always tuned into any noise outside. So he's not really sleeping deeply throughout the night. I could really relate that to our family or our son 
And then once you implemented some of the strategies, his whole life changed and it changed for the people working around him just by recognizing that and implementing you know, some of the strategies that you have. Can I just, uh, just that for a second? Because it's, it's interesting you mentioned seeing that in the book because um, soon after the book came out, I got a, a message from a woman in Australia and she talked about her, how her son had just ne- seemed to never sleep and it was exhausting to him, exhausting to her and her, and her husband as parents and, and how they, they tried a couple of things that I'd suggested and sudden, and he was sleeping through the night and what a relief that was to them as parents. And uh. so I just, let's just, just dive in for a second at a couple of those strategies and specifically for your audience. So, you know, um, you mentioned the boy who was, uh, so this boy was 14 living in a staffed home, but our suspicion was he, he was what the staff described is every time they would interact with him, their first interaction with him in the morning was angry. He was swearing at them. He was telling them to go away. He just, you know, and maybe it's not that extreme, but you've got families where the child's really grumpy in the morning and just, you know, not cooperative seems to need so much extra time to kind of get going with things. And, you know, one thing that we thought is, okay, so if the child's been used to this stress of feeling unsafe, then what's different in the night? Is anything really different in the night? There's still sounds, there's still things that are going on. In this boy's case, he his uh, room backed out onto a uh, a street. It was a residential street, but still people would be driving up and down at night. They would be getting in and out of cars. And we wondered, could he be reacting into this stress state over and over through the night with these small sounds that were causing his body to be alarmed, even though he didn't wake up? And so one of the things that we've learned to do is to, and the same thing might be true for younger kids, but what we've learned to do is to see if we can block out outside noise and at the same time be providing some stimulation, which is patterned, repetitive, rhythmic stimulation, which would actually help the brain to calm and to relax. Dr. Perry would suggest that this actually helps the brain to integrate and organize when we can do that over and over and over again. So one of our favorite things right now for young, for those of you that are caring for young children, one of our favorite things is uh, what we call heart, heartbeat puppies. So you can get these little stuffed animals. They actually make them for uh, puppies that have been adopted away from their moms, but it has a little heartbeat in it. And so the kids like to love to snuggle up against that. And, um, but what is what they're getting through the night, especially children where we know there were issues during pregnancy, what we're providing for them is that heartbeat over and over and over again. And it calms them down. It helps them to sleep deeply. And we're, that's part of that strategy of how do we, you know, get the brain into a more regulated, calmer kind of place. So yeah, I wanted to give a couple of specific. That's great. And calming music. And I know for our son, we use head canceling or head canceling, noise canceling headphones. You talk about in your book, some of your strategies being outside in, bottom up and top down. Uh, Yeah. So this is, so this is sort of based off that idea of the stress staircase and how do we help to change that child, your child's baseline on that stress arousal scale. And so we really think about outside in, bottom up, top down. So outside in, number one, stress is the enemy for our children. So because stress causes anxiety, it, it uh, makes them feel unsafe. So stress is the enemy. So from an outside in perspective would be, what can we take away from this child's life that's causing them stress? Life's hard enough already. You know, what's going on in their, in their week, in their month, in, the, in a day that's too much for them and they're barely coping. So one of the things that, you know, one thing that happens when I think when you've got kids who have many challenging behaviors is we tend to throw services at them. So we want them to go to this therapist and we got, want to add this specialist and we want to send them to uh, horseback riding and we want to, you know, and then we've got, and then we want regular life. So we want them to be doing sports and we want them. And so we end up over-programming them. Yeah. And sending them off. To, so that, so that's stressful for them. It's also stressful for you as a parent. Yeah. Now all of a sudden your schedule has got six extra things you got to be doing on top of, you know, the regular raising things because they're all kind of professional appointments. So right. we look to see what can we remove? How can we take things away? How can we protect from situations where they're just not coping? And this might be school. It might be that, you know, they're just 
struggling all day long. So we might say to a parent, is there any way we can take your child out two days a week, take them out two hours early, just to give them a break, give them some time with you one-on-one. Is there a way that we can reduce, you know, we're often working with kids in the foster care system, parent contact, even though we want kids in the long run to have a positive, healthy relationship with their bio parents and, and even return to them if possible those visits can be extremely stressful and painful to the kids. So that might be something we try and space out for a while, slow down um, to let the kids recover, to let them sort of have that experience of felt safety. So that's that kind of outside in. What are we, what are we looking at in terms of their schedule? What can we remove? Um, because every added stress is, you know, stress is when, they're, when you're a baby and you are an infant, stress is toxic, too much right. of it. So we're really thinking, how do we remove that? Then the bottom up part is, uh, would be, um, how do we use sensory systems, body experiences to help kids to be calmer? So you've got, I mentioned the heartbeat puppy would be an example of that, but it could be things like, you know, uh, a warm bath. It could be, I have a a foster parent that taught me about just throwing a towel in the dryer and warming it up and then she'd wrap her little boy up and she said she could just feel the tension go out of his body with that warmth and the big hug right and and we're looking for those experiences what can we do on a physical level where we just feel the child go ah and you're just letting that tension out so that could be a, there's lots of different things that that could be we we've got kids who respond and you get to be a detective it's your child you get to be a detective what do they where do you get that sense of ah and the breathe out is that by smelling something, their favorite scent? Is that through having a something that's soft that they can squish in their hands? Maybe it's through some uh, bigger movement. We have some children that uh, we like the idea of kind of a move, work, breathe. I've got a child who just, she, she's uh, eight. Any transition was a disaster for her. And so we instituted this thing where, where uh, the family will do a move, work, breathe, little sequence. And they do, so they'll do that every time there's a transition. And if there's no transition, they'll still try and do it kind of every hour for five minutes. So move something high energy moving, you're doing jumping jacks, you're running on the spot and you're doing it along with the child. You go, 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 go. And we maybe count to 10. And then we stop and we take a big breath and then another big breath. And then you do the shake it out, shake it out. You do the wiggles. That's a move. Now work is some, maybe a tension release kind of thing. That could be a stretch. That could be, um, you know, let's pull it, push yourself down into your chair, pull, pull, pull it down into your chair and stop and wiggle it all out. And then a couple of deep breaths at the end. And if we do that, you know, that, that cycle of move, work, breathe, we like to do that twice. And at the end of that time, our little girl who can't manage transitions without a lot of emotion, a lot of upset often, she's ready to go and ready to move on to the next thing. So those would be examples of that kind of bottom up using the body, and then top down is more what we can teach the child. And, you know, I think, so we're teaching some mindfulness, you're teaching deep breathing, you're teaching some other things that where the child's learning what helps to calm them down. I think too often we jump to that as initial, and it's the wrong level of intervention, I think. So if we try and do some of these other things first, the last part of that then is to teach the child and, and practice these things along with them. Right. There's a long, long answer. It's a long answer, but that's exactly, I just have to say, I think you're someone who has really looked around and seen what's missing and you've provided a lot of solutions, including, you know, and honestly in your book, I have, uh, you know, if people can't see, but I've got pages and pages of my own aha moments that we'll eventually get to too. But I want to back up a little bit because I, I mentioned your, your feelings or thoughts on, on labels and diagnoses and how it's not so beneficial. Did you know that Rad Talk with Tracy is not just a podcast? We offer one-of-a-kind support services for parents, including supportive coaching, support groups, and retreats. Rad Talk with Tracy is an online and in-person support community for parents raising children with reactive attachment disorder or RAD. You're not crazy and you're not alone. Rad Talk with Tracy is a place where you'll feel understood, connected, and receive the right support 
If you're looking for your people, your community, and a place where you can feel at home and start feeling better, visit radtalkwithtracy.com. Check out our services and sign up for the one that's right for you. Uh, yeah, for sure. So, you know, oftentimes when, by the time children are referred to us, to my team, nothing's working. So any types of typical services aren't working and they often arrive uh, when we first meet them or, or hear about them. They've got a long list of assessments. They've got a long list of diagnoses yeah. and, um, and the team is not, this team's still confused. Like it hasn't provided direction. Right. A lot of what we have done is we've kind of we, we realized that there ought to be a diagnosis about complex trauma. There was yes, a proposal yes. by Bessel van der Kolk and others to create a developmental trauma disorder. And so this was not approved for the latest version of our diagnostic book, the DSM-5. Right. But I decided that makes so much sense and it describes our kids. So we're going to act as if we had that diagnosis. So yes. if we had that diagnosis what would we do yes. and how would we look at the challenges that kids have? And that's where we developed our seven developmental domains is out of, which is the way we kind of organize the effects of trauma on our children. Is right. we look at seven developmental domains. We may talk about that a little bit more, but uh, so the danger with diagnosis is that we see this as a problem that's resident in the child. Mm-hmm. We see this as something that's permanent in the child and it often changes our our empathy and concern for the child, because now we, we can, well, that's their ADHD. That's their reactive attachment disorder. That's their anxiety. That's their bipolar, you know, Mm -hmm. and what that's doing is it's, there's a, you know, it's subtle, but there's a bit of a depersonalization with that. And it's putting the, it's saying the child has this innate problem. And it's interesting because psychiatrists will tell you, this is just a description of what they saw right at that moment. But if you look at a child's file, any, any kind of diagnosis they've been given along the way stays with them forever. And then we hear kids using that, those descriptions to describe themselves. And I just feel like that's just such a negative. um, It's got so many, there's such a downside to it. So we have tried to stay away from diagnostic labels. We think it's um, what we've been trying to do is to talk about the child's development Yes. Across these different in these different areas, and how do we help their development and growth? You mentioned you're from a, a rehab background. Yes. Which is interesting. So it's so interesting to me. I heard a pediatrician talking in Canada one time, and she said, "You know, if we have an adult who has a brain injury, so they fall off the back of a pickup truck and whack their head, what do we do? We send them to rehab with the expectation that they're going to gain a whole lot of their function back. That we can we can see that." we can see recovery happen. Now there's limitations around that for sure, but we, our expectation is that we're going to see them improve, uh, brain improve, right? Right. What do we do with children? We send them off for an assessment. We get this label mm-hmm. and suddenly that stops us from expecting to see them grow. So we get a, um, uh, let's say we get a diagnosis where we have a mild intellectual disability. We've got uh, ADHD, we've got fetal alcohol or some sort of prenatal substance abuse diagnosis, what's that do to our thinking about the child? All of a sudden we peg them. If we're not careful, we peg them into a hole where we think there's limited growth that we're going to see here. Mm. Rather than saying, wait a minute, what time of life is the brain the most plastic, the most ability to change? Uh, That's when they're young, right? So, so it just, it really challenged my paradigm around that. Like, oh yes, no wonder we have to be careful about these labels and realize that let's just think about development. How do we help this child grow and develop? Right. And in my work too, you know, really does the label matter as much? What does that person need? And let's figure out the things to get them there right? Label or no label, let's really look at the person as an individual. And I think that you have taken this from all levels, from care meetings. So you noticed in the care meetings that there was this disconnect and people coming to the table and still confused and no solution. You noticed three main things that were missing. Part of it was providing education about complex trauma. That was a missing piece for you. And then coming up with a common language that everybody could speak and talk about this thing together and understand. And you even developed an assessment so that it made these meetings from the get-go 
function a lot better and help these kids and families get the support they needed. One other thing that really resonated with me was the crisis of the week uh, that came up in your book about often the, in these meetings, you know, uh, people are just trying to put out that fire. What's the crisis of the week? And so we get stuck on this moment to moment rather than looking at the big picture and the end game and then planning for that. Can you talk a little bit about how you changed that process? Yes. And I bet a lot of your uh, listeners have been involved in those kinds of meetings. Yes. So number one, as a, as a parent, or a foster parent, a caregiver, you probably often felt blamed, whether directly or subtly in those meetings, that people had this, you know, if you must be doing something wrong, that's why your child's sort of showing like this. I bet a lot of you feel like that, even if that wasn't communicated directly. I bet that that's- Absolutely, yes. I hear that but, all the time. And yes. I experienced that myself, yeah. So we go from- a a care team that's often scratching their heads in a bit of a crisis, maybe some conflict within the team when the problems have persisted over a long period of time. And we were thinking, how do we help that team to shift? And the whole idea of educating the team first about complex trauma is so important. As an adoptive parent or a foster parent, you know, you would have been exposed to some training at some point in time about complex trauma. It was probably pretty brief. Very. And it may have been a long time before you actually had your child in your home. Right. And so uh, what I hear over and over again from adoptive parents is uh, well, a few things. They didn't tell me this child's background. I didn't have enough information, but it's like, I wasn't prepared for this. I, this, you know, you get blindsided a bit by yeah. the degree of difficulty, the degree of challenges and how your typical uh, parenting strategies and your love isn't going to be enough that there's, right. there's a whole nother layer of things you need to know. But at that point, we don't come back and provide on a consistent basis, provide that trauma education where this time around you're the light bulbs could go on a little bit, right? Maybe a little bit like it did for you reading the book. It's like, Oh, this, Oh yeah, this helps. Oh, I understand this now. Right. It's like, you need to go back later. So anyway, what we try and do is we try and do this education up front with the care team. And part of that is to try and get to some common language and common understanding so that instead of the eight different opinions, we we're working our way towards a consistent way to see the kids who are seeing the effects of the trauma they've experienced. And then, you know, all the things they experienced maybe before coming to your home, but then life's hard after that, because they're trying to work out this attachment with you. You're trying to work it out with them. There's still a lot of hard moments. You got, you know, regular family stresses. Like it's not, we want to sort of look back at that early trauma as being the, the culprit and it is. And yet yeah. we know that we keep sort of piling onto that unsuccessful experiences. Right. So we're trying to get to that point of, can we have a common language, understand that trauma underlies a lot of this and then apply some of the strategies and then let's see where we are. If we apply these strategies, let's see what happens. And you know, what we typically have found, is that when we do this, take that approach, for one thing, it calms the whole team down yeah. over time. Yeah. Now, we're, now we've got, you know, we, we join care team meetings where the, the system's stressed, the parents are stressed, the caregivers are stressed, the social workers are stressed, everybody's having a hard time. And so it takes a little while to get there, but we get to this point where, oh, this is making sense and it gives us some practical things to do and we're trying these and we're seeing some, often some initial successes that gives the team some, some hope in the process. Right. And then as, and then as far as the structure of the meetings, as you said, the crisis of the week often takes over. I was in a, a care, uh, well, it's a, I'm here, I'm in Arizona now with, child, uh, with Christian family care. And I was at a child family team meeting this week. And there'd been a, some pushing that went on between adoptive mom and the boy. And so this got reported and there was, um, this would have been the topic of the entire conversation. And what we try and do is we try and say, okay, we're going to keep having those kinds of incidents, but let's put those, that's the crisis of the week. We can't have that dominate the meeting or we'll never get anywhere. We need to sort of step back and say, where, where are we trying to get to? What are our treatment goals or treatment uh, plans, intervention ideas? And how are you doing with those? So we, we always start our meetings off with what's going well. What have you tried from what we're suggesting to you and what's going well? Which, and what are, or what are you learning? Well, we learned that he doesn't like this, but he does like this. 
and that helps to calm them down. Fantastic. You, you know, that's a big positive step in the right direction. Will we get to the pushing? Yes, we'll get to that later in the meeting, but it doesn't dominate the meeting. Like let's, let's start with where we're trying to get to and what the key things that we have to do. And typically that revolves around two things. How do we quiet the child's stress response system and how do we deepen attachment? So those are the two things that are often, you know, there's variations on that, but basically those are often kind of the two things that are upfront in every meeting. How are we doing with those two things? And then we'll talk about the particular problem of the week. Rad Talk listeners, it's time to mark your calendars. The second annual Navigating Rad Conference is happening this fall in Atlanta, Georgia from October 7th to 9th. You won't want to miss it. Visit radadvocates.org to register. Well, and the big takeaway for me was that it works. And I think just like parents, everybody wants to be successful and everybody loves these kids and wants the best for them. But when you don't have the right plan solutions or whatever you're doing, isn't working, it's really frustrating. And like you said, everybody comes to these meetings, frazzled and burnt out, whether it is the teacher, the team, the parents. But what I loved in the book was hearing the stories about teachers and people involved with these kids actually getting excited again, because they saw a change that, I mean, we're talking about tough kids here. Uh, these aren't the easy kids. I mean, not that some of them aren't, but you know, the really tough, tough cases, uh, the violent cases. And so to know that there's hope in that, and that with applying what you're doing and seeing that it's making a difference, I mean, what a relief for everybody involved. And that was really inspiring to me to just see that happening from what you're doing. Can I, can I share two, yes. uh, two stories? So one was just thinking about all, you know, all the things that are on your plate as a caregiver and, and how things can be pretty tough. You know, we're often looking for what's the, you know, as we put out some general intervention ideas, but then we're also looking at, you know, what's kind of a pain point? What's the situation that's driving you crazy? And let's see if we can help around that. And I have a bit of a gross example, but um, <laughs> we had a little boy who was eight. And uh, so his foster mother had a couple of children, foster children and, a, and her own kids all around the same age. And the toughest time of the day for her was first thing in the morning, getting these kids out and ready for school and out the door. And it was, she just felt like this, she'd go crazy. This was so stressful. And the main thing was this boy would come out of his room in the morning. She'd go around and call all the kids, you know, time, you know, time to get up, let's get going. And she's busy trying to, you know, make lunches and do that. He'd come out of his room with a pull-up. So he had to wear a pull-up at night. He'd come out of his room, kind of swinging that around over his head. And yeah, a lot yeah. of your listeners are probably going, <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, so, so we had a pain point, right? So we said, so we thought about this and we thought, well, what do we know about this boy? And from our assessment discussion with the team, we knew that, you know, it was really hard for him to feel connected to his foster parent there with four other kids also demanding attention. So we said, what would happen if you went into his room, you know, five minutes early and you just sat on the edge of his bed and you talked quietly to him, rubbed his back, maybe even took him in a little drink or something before kind of calling everybody out. What would happen? And so we tried that. Guess what happened? He didn't need to seek that attention or that connection anymore through this big behavior that was so disturbing because he was getting his cup filled early. Wow. So that example of trying to use, you know, try and get there first with that attachment. The other example I'll give you this just happened this week for me. So we have a 17-year-old girl. And this girl has been having a daily massive panic attacks, just curling up in a ball, going almost dissociative at times. So, so, so anxious. She's in a staffed home. So there's always one person on there with her, but she's, um, you know, she's 17. So they're treating her like a 17 year old and she's having crisis after crisis after crisis uh, off to the emergency, you know, just over and over she's self-harming. So we start, so we did our developmental assessment on her across our seven developmental domains. And as the team was describing her, we realized that she was functioning much more like a three-year-old or four-year-old than she was like a 17-year-old. And so one of the things we were encouraging the team to do is to say, what if she was four? What would we do differently? We knew she'd had a ton of trauma in her life. And, you know, maybe she kind of in some ways got stuck 
at that age, like just didn't progress past that age, even though she's now in a 17 year old body, her language is obviously more developed and she's got 17 year old interests. But what if that emotional age, that, that place where her attachment wounds were kind of hardened in a sense was when she was three or four. And so that we, we brainstormed this with the staff and we were kind of using that analogy of what could you be, instead of being a staff, a youth staff in a group home, what if you were a preschool teacher? What would you do differently? Is there any way that you can kind of symbolically be grabbing her by the hand and leading her through the day, even to the point of, of uh, using a sing-songy voice, of doing stories that had rhyming? Like basically, in a way, I like to use the idea of treating the child as young as they'll let us. I loved that in your book. I was going to bring that up. I'm glad you said that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So as long as, because they're stuck there somewhere, right? So if we can go down to that where they are developmentally. So what happened with this the staff in this home? It's just beautiful. It blew me away. So for about a month, they've been doing this. And number one, the girl loves it. So she's gone from being in her room most of the time and being this high, high state of distress to now being with the staff, the, her caregivers, most of the time and inviting all of that kind of nurturing and just kind of gentle leading that they're doing. What's happened in the attitudes of the staff, though, is the thing that's that was so touching this week. As I was meeting with that staff group, they were all in tears one after another at different points in the meeting because they had this compassion for her that they right. didn't have before. Before, they were just so worried about, oh, no, how do we stop her from having a panic attack? And what if she's cuts? And what if we, who do we have to call? And they were just in such a heightened state of arousal. Right. Now they're, because they're responding to her differently and she's responding to that, their stress is going down. They're, we're given example after example beautiful examples of, of how they were nurturing her and braiding her hair and, you know, laying beside her on the, mm. or cuddling up on the couch to watch the show. And, and wow. they're, but they're, they, as people were changing in terms of how they were right. treating her. I, I just thought it was just so beautiful. That is amazing. You know, I love that you just dive in listening to you, just how passionate you are, but I love that you're diving into this and into a territory that, uh, is hard or most people avoid because it is so hard and these strategies sound so easy, but it still takes work. And I think as a parent in this and the teachers and the physicians and the therapists in our lives, you know, we do struggle because we don't have those solutions, but you really can't do it alone. I'm, I'm just, I can't say enough how helpful your book is and just listening to what you do and how you've changed those care plan meetings. And then those seven developmental uh, that seven developmental criteria that you have and how you take that and apply it to each child individually and then how this works. But we need people like you and organizations like you to get through this because it sounds really easily easy. We're talking about this strategy, this strategy, but that guidance and to know that you're there to support people and not afraid of this and you understand the parents and you just dive in. It is just... I just feel like we've found the Holy Grail. It's so, ah, just so needed. Sorry, that's very high praise, Tracy. Yeah. Well, it's true. It's true. And I can say that because as a, as a parent of two of these kids and a pretty savvy, you know, I think a lot of us are very, most, every one of us is loving and capable. And it's so frustrating when we go above and beyond and that that answer or solution isn't there because we have turned over every stone looking for it and there are resources but depending on what state or province you're in if you're in Canada or wherever you're located it varies uh, from place to place uh, city versus urban versus rural for us it was really difficult and so we might even have you were talking about recommendations about equine therapy and that well, I live in a place that once I get those recommendations, it's not available, or I'm driving an hour and a half one way to try and get there. And the access to it isn't there. It really is difficult to find people uh, at your level and understanding and the approach that you have that actually works and not only uh, works with the children, but the families. And then you also understand what the families are going through. It's not just about the child. It's about the entire team, but you deserve the high praise because really uh, you're a rare breed. And I think you've taken something 
to another level. I'd like to just uh, point out too that this, that, okay, we've worked with 350 plus children and youth uh, over the past 10 years. Um, our outcome data is phenomenal. So if we look at these seven developmental domains and we've seen like significant, statistically significant growth and change in the majority of our kids in every one of those seven domains uh, over time. It's been remarkable actually. Um, but one of the things I wanted to point out is that this is mostly the caregivers doing this. This is the, the so, or the other people on a team, it's not by sending them off to an individual counselor. Most of our kids don't have a counselor. Oftentimes when kids are really dysregulated, they don't, can't, they won't go to individual therapy or the therapist doesn't want them there because they destroy the office and they're, you know, they're just not regulated enough to get there. And so, you know, the majority of our cases don't have any kind of uh, specialized therapist right. in there kind of working with the child. This is mostly what parents, caregivers, um, you know, uh, grandparents caring for their grandchildren, the teachers, the EAs, other people can do with this child. That's the day in, day out therapeutic difference that can happen. And, you know, I think I, the other thing I was thinking of is that with your audience here that, you know, as you said, you bring knowledge, you bring uh, love, you bring effort and over and over and over. But sometimes I, I think we need to be doing a number of the things at the same time so that when we can be dealing with that hyperarousal side, quieting the stress response system, then your attachment connection is going to work better when you like each piece kind of builds on another. And for most of us, I think that feels impossible. Thinking of attachment, uh, just because we've been going about it the wrong way, but I think it feels like an impossibility. And, uh, you know, I'm just so inspired by, by what you're doing. So talk a little bit, I know we don't have too much time, but, uh, you, have these care meetings and then you have your functional developmental assessment that you do for each child, which really looks at their strengths and their weaknesses within each of uh, those seven domains. So no one eats apples in BC. That's the, uh, the acronym. Can you talk about the seven domains? Yeah. So this comes out of the, these domains come out of the, this proposal for developmental trauma disorder. What do we know from the research about the effects of complex trauma on development. We know it can affect the people, kids' bodies, how their body kind of integrates and organizes. Uh, so anything from you know, sensing uh, within your body when you're hungry and tired and thirsty and motor control, sensory sensitivities. You know, if you've got uh, parents of children, particularly where there are issues in pregnancy or soon thereafter, the likelihood is your kids are struggling with sensory sensitivities. So that's all kind of at a body level. Then we're looking at are always overreactive stress response and emotion regulation, attachments and relationships, identity, uh, identity development, behavior regulation, which we use to think about how can we use our thinking to manage our behavior. So it's a kind of higher in the brain um, and then a cognitive and language memory, learning these kinds of or uh, processing information, that, those kinds of uh, systems. So that's, that's our seven developmental domains. And we're looking to, to, to get a picture from the team at the beginning of where's the child developmentally in each of these different areas, where are the strengths, where are the weaknesses, where are the challenges. But we're also really listening a lot for the themes What's, because children can act out for different reasons, right? The same right. meltdown can occur in three different children for three completely different reasons. So we're really listening for that and trying to figure out what are the kind of drivers of the process. So after that assessment, we come back with an intervention plan. For sure, it's going to deal with how do we you know, calm their stress response? How do we deepen attachment? How do we build a positive identity where that's often lacking in our kids? And how do we fight that tendency to hold a lot of shame, which many of them do? You know, the thing the team always wants us to deal with is behavior. And what we find if we deal with these other things, the behavioral issues often, you know, the cleanup go away, get Interesting. You know, really uh, low, get lower in intensity. And so, um, yeah, so that's our, that's the framework and our our intervention plan comes out of that. And when you focus on the right things, like you say, the behaviors disappear. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned something that really caught me. It was, uh, and it's not a positive of our system. So I don't want to end on a, on a bad note, but I was really surprised by it. And it was something about 
we're not looking at the right fit. And this is trauma and reactive attachment, whatever we want to call it right now, uh, isn't just adoptive foster families, it's biological families as well. But in terms of the adoption fostering piece of it, uh, you mentioned that we're not considering the fit in attachment styles that parents and children, we should really go in knowing uh, where we're at because sometimes we're getting mismatched. Yes. Yeah. So I'm thinking we need a whole nother conversation. Okay. <laughs> too much. But yeah, I think that's just so important for us as the, as the parents, as the caregivers to be aware of where our comfort zone is with our own attachment style. Right. And, right. and the more we can be self-reflective about that and understand where we get, where we get, where we're comfortable, where we feel pushed, where we get triggered, the more we can understand that, then the more we're going to be able to adapt ourselves to meet the child's needs in a different kind of way. And the system should be considering that, or it would be great if the system considered that, right? Because absolutely, there can be a mismatch there and make it even harder for us to get to the place we need to with these kids. Resiliency comes up a lot when I'm talking with other parents or working with other parents, why some children do better than others. Uh, can you talk a little bit about resiliency and who's better set up to be more resilient? Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? You know, the, the kind of classic resiliency theory says that when children have enough supportive elements in their lives and not too many negative elements, they're going to be more resilient, right? So that balance between kind of protective factors is what they call the positive things versus the negatives or stresses, then they'll be more resilient. I think there's, there's got to be sort of a neurological connection to that, that when we have children whose brains are a little more integrated and a little more capable of managing, you know, they didn't experience all of these traumatic things, that they're going to do better because their brains can manage it. They can manage a little more frustration before they're pushed over the, the edge. They can manage a little bit uh, less attachment experience right at that moment and still be able to cope. But I, you know, I think there must be kind of a neurological piece to this. It's not just the external factors, the protective factors and the, and the negatives, right? There must be something that says when you've got enough of this, um, you're more neurologically intact um, and that can develop over time when it when you don't have that initially. But the more that we put those pieces together, the more you're going to be able to cope and look resilient on the outside because gotcha. you can manage more. Gotcha. But uh, I think the overarching theme here is hope and growth is possible. Change is possible. These kids that we think are so difficult, uh, it's possible to see them attach and change and let go of those behaviors. It's that they've developed through all the, the trauma that they've experienced and the mistreatment. You asked me at the beginning what my aha moment was yes. and, you know, back in the day there, I would have been one of the other people at the table going, Oh my goodness, this looks hopeless. Right. <laughs> this, this is, uh, there's so many challenges and different, so many things have been tried and it's not working and, and some big extreme behaviors. And, you know, yeah. I would have been one of those people too, you know, <laughs> and now I have, I, I'm rarely surprised now when I attend meetings. I feel like I come in with such hope that if we can just do enough of these, you know, small things, we're going to see kids grow and develop. And that's going to happen most of the time. And it doesn't matter how extreme the presentation is really at the beginning. Now there's some that, you know, sound pretty spooky at the beginning, <laughs> but, right. but really, I just have a huge amount after now, after 12, 13 years of doing this and my team doing this, we just see over and over that kids can grow, their brains can heal yeah. and, uh, and attachments can build. And yeah, it's been wonderful. And the numbers don't lie. Big question that I think is on listeners' minds is how do they get in touch with you? You have a website, complextrauma.ca, and the book is available on Amazon and that's Children and Complex Trauma, a Roadmap for healing and recovery. How do people access you and your team and your services? Is that through your website? Yeah, it'd be best to go through the website. I also work in Arizona with Christian Family Care. Uh, so that's another possibility, but uh, the website's a good place to start. And we've got lots of training materials and other information for parents and caregivers and, and professionals there as well, a number of online courses. 
And do you work with families individually? Do you work with organizations and other professionals, all of the above? Who usually contacts you? Yeah, it's a bit of all of the above. In, in British Columbia, we're mostly working, uh, contracting with the government. So with the agency that, that does foster care, but we've got other organizations coming to us, uh, staff residential homes coming to us for training and clinical wow. support. And we have families approaching us as well. I'm so glad you're out there doing what you do. And I'm so glad to be sharing you with <laughs> the rest of the world that doesn't know about you already. And I just, uh, I can't thank you enough for the work that you're doing. And like I say, for taking on the challenge, you know, like you said, at, back in the day, you would have been that person feeling overwhelmed and not seeing a solution or hope, but instead you took on that challenge and you've come up with this model and approach uh, that works. And I can't thank you enough for being out there and doing the work that you're doing. Well, thank you, Tracy. Thanks for listening, everyone. And I hope you'll be back to listen to future episodes. If you like the show, please subscribe and help me spread the word by clicking share and like. If you're a parent who needs more support, whether it's for you or your family, please check out my website at radtalkwithtracy.com and visit radadvocates.org.